Good morning. It's uh, good to be back in the pulpit after a couple of weeks out and to be back in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and I think we'll, we'll make uh, some good headway uh, over the uh, next stretch. Um, I, I don't anticipate being out of the pulpit till the end of March again, so we'll, we'll get to the end of chapter 3 by then, I think. Uh, but uh, if you would, let's, uh, let's get to Matthew chapter 3. Open up your Bibles. It's in the New Testament. If you manage to find Malachi, you just go one more over and you will find uh, Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, I invite you to follow along with me as I read. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So we embark upon Matthew 3. Our narrative has, has jumped several decades, in fact, three decades. It's about 30 years later from at least when we picked up or left off in Matthew chapter 2 with the birth narrative of Jesus. It's, it's, um, Jesus is, is, is probably 30 or, or just over 30 years old, and, and Matthew is now bringing us to those days while he's living in Nazareth. But the days before his public ministry would begin. However, he doesn't jump to Jesus quite yet, as you can see. We, we're introduced to John the Baptist, and while John is, uh, or Matthew doesn't detail um, uh, all the relational elements to uh, Jesus. John is is Jesus's older cousin. He's just barely older. He was born about six months prior to Jesus, but it's fitting because just as he was born before Jesus, so his ministry starts before Jesus's. And Jesus follows after him. Why is this the case? Well, it's because John the Baptist is a forerunner. He is, he is coming before Jesus to announce the arrival of the king. 
John the Baptist is here, and he's like a voice crying out in the wilderness. He's, he's a preacher who's preparing the way of the Lord. He's a herald saying that the king's arrival is imminent. On occasion, we've had uh, presidents visit the Louisville area, and maybe I, I think uh, President Trump was here sometime in 2018. I'm sure President Obama and, and many others before have, have made their ways, and it, it's quite the event, isn't it? Um, even if it doesn't affect you, but those of you who live downtown or you work downtown, it certainly probably affects your commute. No doubt the, the Secret Service agents, they, they've made their way uh, before the president's arrival, and, and I'm sure that they, they navigate what's the best way from the airport to wherever the event's going to be that's going to be the safest, the, the best route. Uh, they're going to clear the way, and I have no idea what all that entails, but I've seen enough uh, of 24 and other uh, uh, TV shows to know that danger lurks around every corner, including your secret service agents. But they, uh, you know, they're 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 clearing the floors. They're, they're, they probably are putting snipers up on on the the rooftops and at the Galt House and every angle and in businesses. Why? Because they're clearing the path for the president's arrival. Well, John the Baptist isn't going to such elaborate efforts, but he is going before Jesus. He's going before to announce his arrival so that everyone can be prepared. The king is coming, and we need to be ready. He is, as verse 3 tells us, a voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John's a preacher. A preacher of the kingdom. And typically, when we think of the kingdom and the announcement of Jesus, his king, we typically consider the positive aspects of this message, don't we? We think of the kingdom, and, and, and Jesus is emphasizing God's great love, his mercy, his kindness, his patience and long-suffering. We, we think of his kingdom coming and the world being made right and the curse being no more. And certainly all those things are correct. But the announcement of the kingdom, the announcement of the good news of Jesus Christ's coming is a double-edged sword. It's a word of judgment as well. And the first command given in the Gospel of Matthew, the first command given to its readers comes in verse 2 which says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The preparation work of John the Baptist is to give everyone a heads up that judgment is on its way. And everyone needs to heed its message. Everyone needs to return to the Lord. As we continue to examine the text, we learn that John was a prophet. In fact, that's what some of this language is, is screaming at us. He's a prophet. He's a herald of the word of the Lord. And he even dressed the part. You'll notice in verse 4 that John's apparel is, is quite peculiar, isn't it? He uh, wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt. I certainly hope he had something under that, but I, I, I just, I wonder. But he wore camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And you might say, why did he wear such things? Well, that attire was actually spoken of, of, of the prophet. Uh, you know, we sometimes think of, 
this is an older term, the man of the cloth, speaking of, of reverends, or you think of maybe uh, those in more high church tradition, they have the collar, they look the part. I try to look the part, I, I always have a jacket on when I get here, but that's another sermon on the pastor's apparel, which many of you are glad to inform me on. Um, <laughs> But it's the apparel of the prophet, and I guarantee you don't want me showing up like John the Baptist. <clears throat> but it was, in a, it was the apparel of a particular prophet in the Old Testament, namely Elijah. Elijah's ministry also consisted of calling God's people to repentance as they were, they were running after the gods of Baal. As you remember those stories, perhaps. Furthermore, as we read, as Pastor Gary did for us from Malachi 3 and 4, there was also a prophetic expectation that, that Elijah would return and come again before the great and awesome day of the Lord, the day of judgment. John not only had interesting apparel, but he also had a, an interesting diet consisting of locusts dipped in honey. I would prefer chocolate, but I, and I have had grasshoppers dipped in chocolate. Have you ever had that? Yeah. So maybe honey is a good substitute. But furthermore, he, he not only was eating locusts in the, in the wilderness, but he hung out in the wilderness, in the desert. When we think wilderness, I, I think of forests and trees. But in the area of, of Judea and out by the Jordan, it's desert. It's the wilderness. And as he preached this message, he preached it in the wilderness. And so putting all this together, what we, the picture that we have is that John, John's a rugged man with a rugged diet, living in a rugged terrain to preach a rugged message. Everything about him screams about the message that he is to preach. In fact, when you, the, another place that you see about the apparel of a prophet, uh, in Zechariah uh, chapter 13, verse 4, the Lord uh, looks to the day when the prophet will be embarrassed to wear the garments of the, pro of the prophet. Why? Because he will not actually speak the word of the Lord. I think that's a timely thing for many preachers today. They do not want to look like a pastor because then they would have to speak the words of the Lord. And I'm not talking so much about apparel anymore. John the Baptist came with a, a rugged message, a message of repentance, a hard message. You, we would say John was a, 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 a hell and fire brimstone preacher, calling out people, calling a brood of vipers, repent, judgment's coming. That was his message. And this is a message that most do not want to hear. In fact, we'd much rather eat and drink and be merry than sit in sackcloth and ashes. But a call to repentance is the message of the kingdom. It's the message to call or a call to, to return to the Lord, to be made right with them. And as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we not only must preach this message, that is our calling as well, but we must heed it ourselves. Scripture tells us that judgment begins at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So this morning, I want to call us to repentance. I want us to think about that. I want us to just to think, what does it mean that the kingdom of God is near? And why must I repent? 
And certainly as those who claim to be citizens of his kingdom, and I'd imagine that's all of us, we of all people must be prepared. And so to that end, the good news of the kingdom calls us to three things. Number one, to heed the warning. Two, to forsake our sins. And three, and most importantly, to cling to Christ. Let's consider the first of these. Heed the warning. Inherent to the preaching of the kingdom is a warning of judgment. The kingdom of God can can simply be defined as God's reign amongst God's people in God's place. When the kingdom comes, God is going to rule over all the earth. He's going to have a people by which he's going to rule over. However, it is this rule of God which is coming by which he's going to set the world in its proper place. He's going to to fix uh, uh, the world that is off kilter, that is now under the curse of sin. He's going to put his rule in place in a world which is in utter rebellion to him. And so if he's going to make things right, judgment is going to be meted out. When the kingdom arrives, all evil will be dealt with, all injustice will be squelched, and every wrongdoer will be punished. On the surface, we, 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 we shriek back at that message, don't we? We, don't, we, we say, oh, that's, that's not what I want to hear, except when you're wronged. That is the message you want to hear. If you've ever been in court or you've watched some of these dramatic court cases and, 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 and you've seen someone who, in all appearances, has done the crime but gets off, there's a cry out. For justice. And any judge who would then take a a guilty person and disregard their guilt and say, I'm just going to overlook it, we would say is a wicked judge and has failed to uphold the responsibility. Well, how much more will the holy and righteous judge not overlook all the wrongdoing of the world? So if we consider the world in which we live, it is a a world filled with evil. Though the world does not recognize this. I was actually reading an article uh, over the weekend about the future of AI, artificial intelligence. Um, I'm kind of a nerd, so I was interested and intrigued by that. And and, and the article was talking about some of the challenges in the decades ahead if they succeed, these scientists succeed in making robots that function like humans. And, and one of the, the threats certainly was the potential of, of the loss of jobs, that many of the jobs that we do now won't be needed because these robots will be able to do them with far greater efficiency. But then there's ethical questions and worries of Terminator 2 coming to fruition. And uh, one of the leading scientists was asked about this and said, you know, are you worried that... that Letting robots reign was going to be detrimental to society. And his response was intriguing to me because he said, no, not at all. I'm not worried about the long term. And he said this because humans are basically good. And we're encoding the robots. Which just sounded like the the opening line of a movie. (laughs) Yeah, we'll see. I've seen this one play out too many times. That did not bring any comfort to my soul. Well, it's not true, is it? Humanity isn't basically good. 
What we touch, we destroy. We are rebels with a cause. Another headline I read over the weekend spoke of two parents who were arrested because they split their child's tongue in two with scissors. What would possess parents to do such a thing? Sexual morality is rampant. Suicide rate among our children is skyrocketing. In 2007, there was uh, 1,070 cases of children under 18 who had committed suicide. Ten years later, that number is up to 2,300. And the reason that they're, they're suggesting that these things are occurring is because of bullying happening in the schools, ruthlessness, and kids unwilling to face the day. Sexual morality is not only abundant, but it's celebrated. Our culture calls good evil and evil good, and it is wrecking havoc upon our society. The basic foundations of creation and being made male and female are no longer sureties, but believed to be social constructions, which can be self-determined. Therefore, one of the ways humanity is literally destroying itself is by telling little boys you're a woman trapped in a man's body. Parents can now send and are sending their kids to transgender camps so that their boys can act like girls all week without being shamed and bullied. Not only that, parents are, some are even having sex change surgeries done on their children at very young ages because they believe their child's sex is not compatible with their bodies. I mean, just think about that. And this isn't just what's, you know, the freak shows that are shown on TLC. This is happening. And maybe some of you know of these people. Just think about the, not only the physical damage that is going to happen to those children, but also the mental and emotional instability for the rest of their lives. And what's even more scary is that more and more, and this typically is happening amongst those of the teenage years in high school, that in some cases where the parents are not approval, that are, are seeking to give some pushback, the child is then able to go to the guidance counselors and report their parents. Or even, I think courts are trying to work in such a way that they can do this without the consent of their, their parents. We're literally destroying our children. We could even just talk about our own city. Turn on the local news. Wave 3 is my choice. No promotional here. It's just the one I happen to start with, and I just keep doing that one. But anyway, they tell the same thing. You, you, you see the, the stories and, and the shootings and the violence and the abuse of, of children. The horrible things that, that take place. It's heartbreaking. Sin is rampant, and, and everyone who has, has a watching eye if you're truly listening, you're truly watching, you're going to cry out, Lord, something must be done. Stop it. What about us? Yes, it's easy to look outside in the world, and, 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 and I can list all these examples, and that's just the sampling of the articles and the news reports that I watched this weekend. Let me ask, would you be heartbroken if we knew what was daily occurring in your home? 
would we be crying out for justice? Men, are you a tyrant in your home? Striking fear in your wife and your children? Ladies, are you gossips? Chatting about everything that happened on social media and on Facebook? Church, do you live one way here on Sunday, but another throughout the week? Do you work hard at your job? Or are you lazy, stealing pay from your employer? Bumping up your, your hours, wasting time, and stealing. Let me ask you, are you merciless toward others? Exacting an unbearable standard upon people that you yourselves could not meet? Is your speech honorable and pure, or is it filthy and corrupt? Do you allow your mind to indulge in vengeance and lust and greed? Do you set your eyes only on your spouse, or do you dream of another? For I tell you, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And in verse 7, John warns the religious leaders who come out to observe his ministry, and he says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That, that phrase, brood of vipers, is significant. He, he's saying, you're children of snakes. And the picture here is kind of a tree burning and, and the snake slithering out trying to escape. It's also significant on a theological level because Satan himself is, has disguised himself and taken on the identity of a serpent. And so what John is really saying is, who warned you, children of the serpent, children of the devil? I told you, hellfire and brimstone. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, they're, these religious leaders, they're coming... And probably they themselves aren't like all of Jerusalem, Judea, and those about in the region of Jordan who are coming to confess their sins. These religious leaders are coming because they are, they're going to watch and observe, possibly to seek to give approval to what John is doing, or disapproval. And John calls them out. You claim to be children of God, but your value system reflects your father, the evil one. And so what John is announcing is that the wrath of God is coming upon the values of this evil world. I want you to see that it's not just John who says this. It isn't like he's the hatchet man and he comes in, he prepares the way, he has the hard message so that Jesus can be the lovey-dovey guy. Jesus says the very same things and does it all the more. In fact, the next time we receive a command... Toward the reader is when Jesus says the very same thing in chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus goes on. Matthew 5, 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He goes on. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, 
will be liable to the hell of fire. Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. They're many. Matthew 7, 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John's going to say the same thing. Matthew 7, 26 through 27. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. That's the judgment. And it fell and great was the fall. Matthew 12, 36 through 37. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. That's frightening. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. In other words, by your words you will be condemned. Jesus says on the day of judgment, humanity is going to be sifted. It's going to be separated. He uses the analogy of sheeps and goats, wheat and tares, the righteous from the unrighteous. And Jesus says to those goats, tares, and unrighteous, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Those are some strong words. And so what we see here is we're entering the gospel of Matthew, the good news. It is good news. And the preaching of the kingdom is that it entails an announcement of judgment. John says that this judgment is not far off. It actually is near. If you're still in John or Matthew 3, look in verse 10. John, John warns them about the judgment. He says, even now, oh, okay, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. You got a picture there of a, of a tree and, 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 a, and a person has that axe laid there. He's, he's got it lined up, ready to swing. The judgment is imminent, he says. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is going to be cut down and is going to be thrown into the fire. Again, in verse 12, he's now speaking of Jesus. He says, Jesus is going to come, the one who's greater than me. And he says in verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He's already picked up this fork. And he will clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. We'll come back to that. While the judgment is not fully arrived and it won't fully come until Jesus returns and every eye beholds him and every eye will see him and every knee will bow to him. And the world will be consumed with fire. Even now, the judgment is already being meted out. In what way? A sifting is already beginning. A calling out of people. A, a, a sifting of the, of the righteous from the unrighteous. The wheat and the chaff. How, how is that? Well, with the arrival of Christ in His first coming, the time of ignorance is, no, is over. Time of ignorance is over. And those who do not heed this warning are being cut off from the tree of life. They're being handed over to their sins and blinded from seeing the light of the gospel. 
Because elsewhere, Paul says that they are storing up for themselves wrath on the day of wrath when the righteousness of God is revealed. You maybe have heard me talk about this before, but I've, I've, I've spoken to those who, who, who claim that they don't believe in God because, well, he hasn't done anything about it. If sin's so bad, why, why am I able to live however I please? God, if you're real, kill me right now. See? But here's the, the subtle thing about it. God allows them to believe they're in the right. And like a dam of water that is building up and the pressure is building, as long as they continue in the hardened state, the wrath of God is fueling and getting stronger and stronger. That hand is rising higher and higher, and the higher it goes, the, the harder it hits. The judgment is already beginning. And a sifting is coming and happening. And so since the wrath of God is coming upon all evildoers, the message of the kingdom obviously calls us to forsake our sins. And that's the second point that I want us to see. We're to forsake our sins if this is true. Just as eating poison will, will bring about certain death, so the wages of sin is death, brothers and sisters. Therefore, just as those who came out to John to be baptized and confess their sins verse 6, so we must flee from the wrath of God by confessing our sins. That's how you run. You confess. And forsaking can never happen apart from confession. But what do we mean by confessing our sins? Well, fortunately, we did that right before we took Lord's Supper. We're wanting you to actually participate in the service and, and begin to confess and learn what that looks like in your life. But what is confession? Confession, and you might have felt it when we said these things. Confession is the painful act of agreeing with God that our sins are many and they are evil. Maybe you read some of those things and you're like, ooh, I don't like saying that. It was painful, wasn't it? We're confessing, we're agreeing with God. My sin is wicked and I deserve judgment. This is like David who poured out his confession before the Lord in, in Psalm 51. Just listen. David says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David confesses, this is a man after God's own heart. Confesses his sin, pours it out to him, to God, and he says, I my transgressions, there are many, they overflow for me, and you will be blameless in your word of judgment that you speak towards me. I deserve it. That's what he's saying. And this is the heart of repentance. Confessing to God that you hate your sin. And this hatred of sin will then lead to a forsaking of it. A true confession. Not just a, a flippant, oh yeah, we're all sinners. No, I'm a sinner. And I sin in this way, Lord. I sin like this all the time. I deserve your judgment. That true heart, that broken and contrite heart 
That's a heart that leads to forsaking sin. This is why John says in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance, therefore, is not this thing you did one time. It's something that you continually to do. We're always repenting. I'm repenting every day, all the more. And those of us who've been following Christ for some time now, we realize I'm more aware of sins in my life now than I was prior to that. I liken it to maybe a sculptor who's taking a tree and going to uh, begin to, to, to sculpt something. They, they start with just hacking away at it and breaking off all the bark. It's kind of some big things. But then as the work of refining continues, he moves to a chisel and works on areas of our life. Well, that's what happens as we're being sanctified. The Lord continues to refine us and purify us and showing us our sin, and it's painful. And those who truly confess will bear fruit. You will see something of it. It won't just be words on their, on their lips. It will reflect itself in their actions. So we're to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That is, live according to your confession. Let the thief no longer steal. Let the one who speaks falsehood now tell the truth. Let sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness not even be named among you. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. In other words, let the sinner forsake his ways. And the one who truly does, you'll see it a difference. In other words, if you claim to follow Jesus... You must walk in his footsteps. If you claim to worship him, then you cannot be found worshiping idols. Do not deceive yourself. What you reap, you, what you sow, you will reap. You reap, you sow to the flesh, you'll reap to the flesh. You give yourself to that, you'll, you'll, you'll reap corruption. However, hearing this call to repentance, the temptation is to dismiss it. And some of you are doing that right now. Some of you are dismissing it and saying, no, he's, that doesn't really apply to me. And we, we convince ourselves that I'm not as bad as, as those people, whoever those people are, and therefore I don't need repentance. We presume that we're in a better state than we actually are. And John brings that up to the crowd and specifically to the Pharisees and Sadducees in verse 9. He says, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. What's he talking about here? Well, Abraham, the children of Abraham, were, were the children of God, were true believers. And these religious leaders are coming out, and he already anticipates what they're thinking. We don't need to be baptized. We don't need to confess our sins. We don't need to do these things. We're children of Abraham. He says, you're not children of Abraham. Tell you what, God's going to raise up from these stones, children of Abraham. What's he saying? He's saying just because you claim to be children of God doesn't mean you're children of God. Today, this looks like many who say, oh, I'm good. I believe in God. I hear that all the time. That is the number one response I hear from people who I evangelize. Oh, I'm good. I believe in God and stuff. That's usually how it comes out. He says, then why don't you worship him? I, I believe in God. That's all. That's all. I, I don't really get involved in that. You mean you don't obey him? You don't do what he says? 
looks like those who say, well, I'm a member at such and such church. I'm a leader there. I'm a deacon. I'm an elder. I was baptized when I was a young child. And they, they list these accomplishments and all these ways by which they're presuming, I'm good. I, I, this message doesn't apply to me. What the Gospel of Matthew is telling us is do not presume to say to yourselves, we're children of God because of our accomplishments. Instead, you and I must see ourselves as lifeless rocks upon the ground begging for God to be merciful to us as sinners. There's probably a play on words here that that our hearts are hard as stone. And really, those children of Abraham are the ones whose hearts are no longer stone, but hearts of flesh that love him. However, we don't just want to repent aimlessly, though. Fleeing from one sin to another, but we must forsake our sin and cling to Christ. I heard one time that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you don't know that name, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, um, a fantastic preacher, probably most influential preacher uh, in the uh, 20th century next to maybe uh, Billy Graham, but his ministry was over in Europe. But uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached in London at Westminster Chapel, and, and one night he was preaching, and I think he was preaching out of Romans 8, and his whole sermon he focused on the wrath of God and the judgment of God to come. I think it was actually that morning. And he said, come back tonight. And I'll tell you the good news. Well, in between those two sermons, there was a great fire in London where many, many people died. And from that point on, he was just sickened over himself because he was convinced that some of the people who had been in that pew would not make it to the next sermon. And so from that point on, he vowed that he would always end with good news. He would never just leave it with the wrath and sin, but he would, he would move to Christ. And so... Fortunately, our text leads us there and makes it easy for us. And I want to exhort us with the time that we have left to cling to Christ. That we'd heed the warning, that we'd forsake our sin, and we would cling. Cling for our very lives to our Savior. This is the purpose for which John's ministry existed. It was to point people to Christ. And he goes on in verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water For repentance, but he who is coming after me, oh, he is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What's John doing? Well, in some sense, he's modeling for us what it looks like for sinners to turn to Christ. He's deflecting. He'll say elsewhere that I must decrease and he must increase, speaking of Christ. Oh, you're all coming out here and flocking and confessing your sins. That's good, but I want you to know that I'm not the end. I'm not the cul-de-sac. I'm just the pathway, and I'm pointing you to someone far greater. I baptize you with water, but the substance of your repentance is coming. Oh, this is just preparatory work. This is just symbolic. But the one who can wash away your sins is coming. He is mightier. He is greater. And we must humble ourselves before him. Why? Because he has what we need. And if you and I truly understand the depth of our sin, we know we can never cleanse ourselves. 
And oh, that humility, that posture that John exudes. He says, this one who's coming, I'm not even worthy to take his sandal off his feet, which would have been the most menial of jobs of a servant. I don't even fit into that category. This one is far greater than you could ever imagine. And he is the one who is coming. And the baptism I have, oh, it is just water. There's one who's coming who's actually going to change your hearts. Brothers and sisters, we cannot run fast enough to escape from the wrath which is coming. And so we must find refuge where the wrath has already come. We must stand where the fire has already burned. And that place is none other than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The wrath of God came upon him. As he bore the judgment of God in full, he drank the cup of God's wrath to the last drop. He tasted death completely so that all who are in him would never be condemned. And in him we receive the Holy Spirit, which cleanses us from all of our sins and washes us of all of our iniquity. And the refiner's fire will begin to work for all those who are in him. The fire will not burn us, it will refine us. But those outside of the cross, outside of the burn marks, outside of the judgment zone, it will consume them. This refiner's fire is the work of the Lord upon us, which he will complete on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ when he returns. It will burn off every impurity and make us as pure as fine gold. And so for this reason, we are to lay hold of Christ and find our righteousness in him. Because you cannot flee fast enough. You cannot confess enough. You cannot do enough. Because the fire is coming. And the only hope for anyone is to stand where the fire has already burned. Because it cannot burn anymore. There's nothing less to consume. And we sang, oh, there is a fountain filled with blood. It washes all my sins away. The reason the fire will not burn is because the sins have been taken away in Christ. And so where do you flee? Where do you forsake? You forsake your sin and you cling to Christ. Through faith, you you lay hold of him and you confess to him and you say, "I, I love you, I call upon your name, save me. And I will follow where you go. The judgment cannot touch you. John tells us even now the winnowing fork is in his hand. And although he is emphasizing judgment here, uh, there is a word of hope. The winnowing fork, what is that? Well, it's a tool which farmers would use to kind of sweep up their, their wheat in the barns and the threshing floor. They'd come out and they've gathered the wheat, but it's got chaff on it. It's got, it's got debris. And so they'd take their fork and they would throw it up. And as the wind would come by, it would would blow the lighter chaff away and separate the wheat from the chaff. And after he had done that for some time, sifting out the wheat substance, that which he was going to keep, he'd take the wheat and he'd gather it into his barn. Brothers and sisters, on the cross of Christ, through faith, he is gathering you into his barn. And that barn's not going to burn. 
because the burn piles over here on the threshing floor where the chaff is gathered. And so I'm calling upon anyone here today, if you have not trust Christ, come while his hands are extended as he is offering you life. Come to him. Because the wrath of God is coming. And when he burns that chaff, it will be with an unquenchable fire. That means that fire will not stop. Elsewhere, Jesus says that is where the worm never dies, an eternal fire. But you can come to him now and have eternal life. So for this reason, I call upon those of you who do not cling to Christ for your salvation to do so today. Do not presume that you're exempt from the judgment to come. That your sins are not many and that God has somehow turned a blind eye to your sin because he's done nothing to you yet. I plead with you, do not mistake his kindness and patience towards you as ambivalence towards your sin. No, he is patient with all. Not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Do not live like a fool and waste and spurn the grace of God which is being extended to you right now. As you have breath and you have ability, you can confess him as Lord today. But do not presume that you will have that opportunity tomorrow. And so I plead with you today. At the end of the service, I'm going to be out in the lobby where I always stand outside those doors. And I'd love to tell you more about this Savior. This one that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe your heart that God raised him from the dead, you, you can be saved from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Lord, I plead for us. Lord, I plead on, on two, two levels. I, 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 first, I plead for those who do not know you those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, who are, are blinded to their own sin and your righteousness and your holiness, Lord, I pray that you would open up their eyes now. Your word is penetrating like a two-edged sword piercing into the depths of their heart, revealing their sins. And, and Lord, that today they would, they would stand in fear of you and say, truly God is among this people. And they would cling to Jesus. Lord, I pray for us as, as those who claim to be your people, those who are true children of Abraham. Oh, Lord, that we would continue to bear fruit, keeping with repentance, that we would, we would endure to the end, that we would continue to follow after Christ. We would not lay, let go of him. But all the more as we see the day drawing near, we would, we'd find our hope in him. And as we hope on him, that the things of this world the enticements of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, oh, that those things would grow strangely dim and less satisfying and that our hearts would truly desire you. For that's our prayer and that's our plea. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.